Pastor just mentioned that it was about a year ago when you were talking about bringing on a, a worship pastor. Uh, most of you wouldn't know this. Um, Brian and Krista might remember, but it was a year ago this weekend that Amy and I first came to uh, First Baptist St. John's. We tried our best to blend in and disappear the crowd, and Brian did his best to quiz me on who I was, where I was from, what I did for a living, and all of that. So safety team guys just won't let it go. Uh, and a lot's happened in the last year, and uh, we are so grateful to God. Um, I've titled this, How Should We Then Sing? Uh, the, the conference that Amy and I uh, took part in in September truly was exhilarating, if for no other reason than just being in the presence of such ex extraordinary musicians. Um, that in and of itself is, is very uplifting. Um, but the content of what we were able to participate with at that conference um, really just made my heart sore. There's a lot of things that I heard that were really not anything new, but I think some of these, some of these concepts are things that we need to remind ourselves of on a fairly consistent basis. The same conference, uh, it was uh, described in... Uh, on the website, this conference exists to help pastors, musicians, and leaders build a biblical understanding and creative vision for the congregational singing in their churches. I've been leading worship for a long time, um, and I think it's good to be reminded of some of the great things in Scripture that tell us why and why we do what we do. And I want this morning to kind of challenge us as a congregation, quite frankly, why are we here in this room? What do we do in this room and why do we do it? Um, the first speaker that we heard, and I will start uh, with this, the content of what I'm gonna share you, with you this morning is not my material. Um, there's a lot of this that I'm taking from um, Alistair Begg, who was the first speaker we heard. A lot of it I'm taking from a workshop that I heard about when we were there at the conference and we didn't get to go to. Um, but I got this neat little digital pass. I could go watch the whole conference and, and so forth later. And um, you'll understand a little bit why I'm focusing on that portion of scripture later. Alistair Begg and some of the other speakers talked about liturgy. Uh, now for me, growing up in a conservative Baptist uh, environment, Liturgy is something that, you know, almost seems like a word we would want to avoid. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer, High Mass, some of the things that might come to mind when we think of liturgy. The word liturgy actually comes from a Greek word meaning service or worship of God. So liturgy really means what we do in worship. We just sang some songs, we received an offering, that's part of our liturgy. Um, so singing, taking an offering, message from God's word, communion, baptism, and even weddings kind of um, participate in the liturgy that we as First Baptist Church regularly partake in. I remember years ago when I was in college, a friend of mine saying in class, I could tell you right now what the order of service at home will likely be this coming week. And she went forth to stipulate 
exactly how the order of service would go. And we as humans, I think, like to have um, order, um, habits, and sometimes those habits can be good. Sometimes we call them ruts. And I, as a worship pastor, do my best not to get into those. Um, and Pastor Tim and I talked about some of these concepts the other day quite a bit because no matter what we try and do, there's going to be patterns that we develop. That's part of our liturgy. And my fear in getting into ruts is this. Um, anytime we come into this context in a worship setting, we get into a rut. Our humanity makes our brain kind of just shut off. We sit in the pew. Church happens around us, but we're, are we thoroughly engaged? I want to start by reading uh, Psalm 100. We're going to read that, and then we're going to have a word of prayer, and I'll continue on. So let's uh, turn to Psalm 100. This was the passage from which Alistair Begg had begun, um, as he put it, to set the context of what the conference was going to be. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for giving to us in Scripture the things that we need to know and understand that we might in our feeble humanity even attempt to come before your throne and worship you, the only one who is worthy of worship. Help us to glean from these passages of Scripture that which we need to this morning, that we might go changed from this auditorium and proclaim your glory, not just today, but throughout this week. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So why do we gather for worship on Sundays? This was from his segment called Why We Sing, Created, Compelled, and Commanded. This psalm, Psalm 100, invites all the people on earth to worship the Lord with gladness and thanksgiving, for he alone is God, and he alone is good. That's kind of a synopsis of the whole of Psalm 100. It's interesting, too, to note that it commands us to make a joyful noise. We are to worship him. This isn't optional. This isn't, well, I really don't want to participate on Sundays or I really want to, don't want to go to church. We are commanded that we do these things. Now, I believe that this is not necessarily specific to Sunday worship, corporate worship, but that we do these things day in and day out so that when we gather as a congregation, what we participate together with here as a congregation is merely a continuance of what you have been doing at home and at work all week long. He quoted a man named Sinclair Ferguson, another Scotsman, 
who said, Jesus leads every worship service you attend. He is the worship leader. You may be the music director in a church or its organist or sing in its choir or play in its worship ensemble. You may even be its minister. But the one thing you are not is the worship leader. Jesus is the worship leader. And that, as you go back to Hebrews chapter 8, it says this. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. He is our high priest. He is the one who goes before the throne of God in the midst of us. We just have the privilege of participating. C.H. Spurgeon also said, Remember that the song is not for your glory, but for the glory of the Lord, so that we are to make a joyful noise. We are to shout to the Lord, Oh, be joyful. I thought it fascinating and somewhat comical, he went in, uh, Alistair Begg went into a little bit of a story about the fact that you go to a soccer game in the UK, 50,000 people in an auditorium, and singing will just start. You know, who started the singing? What, how did that happen? And how do you get 50,000 people to sing together? And he said, it's just common. He said, you go to bars all over the UK, and people just sing. That's just part of their culture. And he said, oddly enough, and he's lived in the States a while, he said, oddly enough, he said, the United States, the culture is not necessarily a culture that sings. You go to a baseball game, and what do you hear? The organ playing in the background, charge. They don't even sing the charge. They just kind of shout. And we are a culture that, largely speaking, is not like others that just sing in everyday life, at grand occasions, at whatever occasion. But we are commanded that we make a joyful noise, shout to the Lord. Those of us who are tone deaf are not making a joyful noise, we're making a dreadful racket, is what he said. <laughs> you Probably, if you've been around at all, you've noticed that you know, choir rehearsals began um, a few weeks ago in preparation for Christmas. And you know, how many times, even since I've moved here, somebody said, you know, well, I don't read music, but I'd love to sing in the choir. I, mean, I consistently tell people that's 80 to 90% of the people that I've ever worked with in a church choir don't read music. That's also not part of our culture. And I understand that. It's sad, but there's not a whole lot I can do about that. If you want to learn to read music, we'll talk later. But um, that's just not part of who we are. And yet, we are commanded to shout to the Lord, which is a word of welcome in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 100. It is a word of welcome to a king when he comes into possession of his throne. It says we are to serve with gladness, to serve him with sincerity and with faithfulness. And when it says sing, it's an extended invitation to come into his presence with singing. The fact that we are singing, he says, is an evidence of spiritual life. 
the fact that we are singing is evidence of spiritual life. What we sing is a matter of spiritual importance. It must indeed be framed biblically. And as Pastor Tim suggested, part of my duties are to um, read through and make certain that what we do as a congregation is theologically sound. I've come across some songs where you kind of scratch your head and go, I don't get it. Musically, it might be fun. It might even be memorable. But you kind of go, hmm, what is that really saying? We need to be careful of those things. You need to be careful that the language within a song uh, with a change of a conjunction or a word here or there doesn't truly change the theology intended in the song, which can very easily happen. But we need to be um, mindful of those things. So that we sing is evidence of spiritual life. What we sing is of spiritual importance. The way we sing to and side by side one another is vital. Now, he even suggested that the further back you go in an auditorium, I never get the opportunity to judge this, um, although I did hear this um, at my last church where people would say, you know, you get to the back and nobody's singing in the back. And he, wrote, and he said, you get further back in the auditorium and you've got your change jinglers and then a little further back you've got your hummers. And then he said, by the time you get to the back, there's no singing whatsoever. Now, I know that's not the case here. At least I'm trusting that's not the case here. If I see those of you in the back suddenly move to the front of the auditorium next week, we'll... Anyway. All that to say the purpose of worship is simply to express the greatness of God. Now, the bulk of what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning really comes from a workshop that I did not even have the privilege of attending. I had heard this particular speaker um, the first day we were there, and somebody had asked a question, and he responded and said, well, you really need to come to my, my breakout session tomorrow because I'm going to be doing this, this, and this. I thought, oh, that'd be great to go, but we didn't get to. So I have listened to that uh, workshop probably three or four times since then. His name is Matt Boswell. He's a writer of songs that uh, we perhaps even sing already here. And uh, his focus in this, uh, this breakout session was called How the Gospel Shapes Corporate Worship. Why does the gospel, why does the word of God shape what we do? And while on its face it may seem a little silly to say how does gospel shape corporate worship, I think you'll understand as we seek to go through this exactly what he means. Now, he has taken the structure of this outline from a book written by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? And the four things that he was suggesting that we as worship leaders, as pastors, what have you, when we focus our attention on building a worship service, what we as a congregation will then collectively participate in are these things. Number one, who is God? Who is man? Who is Christ? And how should we respond? Now, while we may not necessarily get to each and every one of those things um, on a Sunday morning, that's kind of the underlying philosophy we go through. Um, and here's where I want you to turn. Turn now to Isaiah chapter 6. And I think this is a passage that truly expresses worship. And here's why. We'll read this in a moment. But in Isaiah 6, we have Isaiah, in essence, before God himself. 
Now, I want you to stop and think before we read this passage. Imagine waking up one morning, you swing your legs over the edge of the bed, and suddenly you find yourself face to face with God on his throne. You haven't had time to brush your teeth, straighten your hair, even get out of your pajamas and put on normal clothing. What are you going to feel like when suddenly you realize that you are face to face with the creator of all that you've ever known and all that you've ever seen? Every instance that I find in worship where someone is, in essence, face to face with God, there's a similar position, physical position you find them in, either at that point or shortly thereafter. Anybody know what that position is? Face down. And we'll, we'll touch a little bit on that as we move through some of these scripture passages. Uh, and let's start, we're going to read just uh, the first four verses of Isaiah 6 as we begin, talking about who is God. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, I remember, even as a child, getting into a passage like this and tried to imagine what that really must have looked like. Some of these prophetic passages that we read of in Scripture um, and passages like this, where you're trying to imagine what he really saw to describe what we now read. I have tried for years to figure out what a seraphim really would look like. How do you have six wings and how do you, where do, how do you know where you're going if you cover your face? How do you, all those sorts of things. That's what young boys think of, strange things like that. But as we read this, what kind of a center of awe must we have as individuals thinking about the fact that we are truly in the face of Almighty God. And I think it, as we start drawing parallels with our subject matter this morning, the fact that we are here in corporate worship, we are in the presence of Almighty God. Now, we don't see a throne in his robe and angels flying around, but we are in the presence of Almighty God this morning. And to be perfectly frank, we should feel just as unworthy as he felt, even to be in this room and to corporately gather to worship his name. And we'll touch base on the why of that in just a couple of minutes. This is God Almighty, the creator of everything. We need more awe of the God whom we worship. Our response in this movement is meant to be adoration. When you look further through the pages of Scripture down to Revelation, you will find that the angels are still singing the same song in Revelation that Isaiah wrote about here. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I find it interesting, too. Now, these angels, as they're described, sound kind of silly with all these wings and so forth. They are not in any way concerned with looking foolish before God. And why do you suppose that is? Because these angels are doing the one thing they know to be important. They are extolling God in his grace, in his majesty, in his glory. It has nothing whatever to do with them. Alistair Beggett even suggested at one point in his message that we need to think far less of ourselves in this kind of a context and far more about him because he is to be our focus. Well, if we, if we contextualize who God is as the almighty creator who is worthy of praise, then who is man? If we look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, it says this. This is what Isaiah said. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think Isaiah had that response because he recognized how worthless he truly is standing before Almighty God. Um, I'm quickly turning back here because there's something in my, not in my notes that I want to make sure I reference. I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and he recognizes that anything that he says, the prophet of Israel, he is unworthy in that context. Um, we as individuals need to recognize that as we see the holiness of God on display, that we are to be just as undone as Isaiah was. He sees his own filthiness. And the problem that Isaiah now has is that he knows his own, filth, his own filthiness. And God clearly knows the filthiness of Isaiah. So in, in, in many respects, Isaiah is there confessing before God of his unworthiness to even praise. And we as a people of God must continually confess our sin before him that we might have any semblance of standing before him worthy to worship. Now you might be saying, Pastor Mike, we are covered in the blood of the Lamb when God looks at us. We are, yeah, I understand that. We have been sanctified by Christ's sacrifice and his shed blood on the cross. And his resurrection proved that. But we can't know that information and then simply go live our life any way we like and come flippantly into an auditorium of any kind and worship God. We need to consistently and continually be making certain that our relationship with God is a right relationship with God that we have no barriers between us and our Savior, that we might have 
uh, an opportunity to truly praise him. So who is God? He is almighty. He is holy. We as man are completely unworthy, completely filthy in our own sinful humanity. Then we need to turn to who is Christ. Here we can be assured of our pardon in Christ. There are passages of Scripture that show us that we are washed in his sacrifice, as I just referenced. The best outside of this that we have to offer is filthy rags. I don't know how many times I've talked with people and say, I try to do good things. I try to be a good person. Well, well, in our humanity, that's very admirable. In the eyes of God, it tells us that even the good things that we do in our humanity are nothing but filthiness to God because of our sin nature. Turn with me back to Titus chapter 3 for a moment. We'll come back to Isaiah in a little bit if you want to keep a thumb there. Titus chapter 3. You think about the context of worship, recognizing God as holy, recognizing our unworthiness to even worship him, and then we can come to a passage very similar to this one or this one, if you will. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If we came to church and recognized God's holiness and then subsequently recognized how unworthy we are and stopped there, how depressing a worship service would that be? I know that there are faiths out there that teach that we gain God's favor by doing good things. And that, quite frankly, we can't really know where we stand with God this side of eternity. We believe that the Scriptures teach us that we who trust in Christ and His salvation offered through His sacrifice on the cross, His death, burial, and resurrection can wash all our sins away. So when we recognize our sinfulness and reflect upon the salvation he has offered, truly we have grounds there, if nothing else, to praise Almighty God. Do we not? Go back to Isaiah 6, because what happened after Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, this is the next verse, Isaiah 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now I want you to look at this. I actually redid this particular slide, and I want you to look at what I changed. Because if you look at the last phrase, your guilt has been taken away, and your sin atoned for. 
Do you ever get overwhelmed with that? Do we ever, in recognizing God's holiness, just get undone by the fact that we, recognizing our filthiness, have been granted forgiveness in God? Christ has died in the place of sinners. It is here that our eyes behold the glory of Christ anew, and our hearts sing songs of salvation. This is the centerpiece of our liturgy, our worship, how we worship as a church. Quickly as we close, how should we then respond? People might say, well, how was worship today? Well, what part of worship? We've done some singing. We've received an offering. Um, We've heard a message. Well, the sermon itself is to be an exposition of the glory of God. The glory of Christ from every page The center of our gathering is the preaching of God's word, and at the center of every sermon must be the glory of Jesus Christ. The sermon is our opportunity to receive the word of God as if Christ himself is speaking to you. So first, we have that assurance of our pardon that we read of in Titus chapter 3. that the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here we can sing of the redemption offered by our Savior. Now I want you to look back at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And here is our response written for us in Isaiah 6. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. Uh, And we'll stop there. And it says here, Isaiah's been commissioned and we have been commissioned as well. The content of our message is Christ crucified. This is a message to a world that is bent on getting its own way. It's not hard to look very far in our culture and realize it's not gravitating toward Christ. And that the only way that our culture, local and abroad, is not going to gravitate toward Christ, but we must tell them of him and how worthy he is of our praise. The liturgy that we participate with on a Sunday morning is to be a framework upon which we can focus our energy to help remind ourselves and our people that the uh, gospel and subsequently the commission we have been given as believers will be first and foremost in our thinking as we gather to corporately worship regularly. Services on Sundays, or whatever the worship day may be, should not ever be a spectator event. But we are to be partakers all in the event Anything less than full participation flies in the face of what we read in Isaiah. Because Isaiah, in recognizing God's holiness, could not in any way say, I'd rather watch. He had to be involved, as do we. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for again, to giving, giving us a structure and a groundwork for how we are to worship you. 
Lord, I thank you that despite the fact that you are a holy and righteous God, and we are the extreme opposite of, of holy and righteous, that you have made it possible that we might worship you in spirit and in truth because of what Christ did for us on the cross. I pray, Lord, that as we seek to honor and glorify you, even continuing this day, that we would reflect upon those things that affect our perspective of who you are and how much you deserve our praise. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.